Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top-tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.delupa.com compounders to learn more about how Delupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Jimmy Schwartz, the co-founder and CIO of Harvey Partners. Jimmy founded the firm in 2006 with his partner, Jeff Moskowitz. Over the last 17 years, the firm has put up an enviable track record by focusing on stocks that other people neglect, as well as companies that are at an inflection point. In this enjoyable conversation, we covered the types of company-specific situations that get Jimmy excited, how the firm sources companies that are at an inflection point, how eclectic his portfolio is when it comes to the variety of companies, and how Harvey Partners has been able to protect downside during market downturns. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Jimmy Schwartz of Harvey Partners. So Jimmy, you've taken a pretty non-traditional route to being a stock picker. Can you talk about what you learned as a sports journalist and how you decided to pursue a career in investing? Yeah, so um, I worked at NBA Entertainment um, from 1990 to 1998, and I loved it. And I would spend my weeks finding great stories, under the radar stories to get on air. I would write the stories, edit the stories, um, get them on air and then do the same thing the following week. And I loved the personal interest stories. I loved finding interesting people to, you know, to tell stories about. Um, I think of, you know, back in 94 when George Murasan and Manute Bull were on the bullets at the time. Um, George was 7-7 and Manute was 7-6. And we went down there and what we didn't realize, uh, George goes by Gitsa, which is little George in Romanian. He was like a slapstick comedian, just so funny. You know, the ball would, you know, knock him in the head. He would start laughing, just a real lighthearted, fun guy. Um, and 
we got that on the air and I think really showcased George uh, for the first time. And those were the kind of stories that I loved to tell. Um, and it would, you know, from the show called Inside Stuff um, to doing the halftime features for the WNBA when it launched in 97 on Lifetime, NBC and ESPN. It was just, I would just love telling stories. And during the 1998 NBA strike, I decided to study for the GMATs and try something different. But what I always loved to do was finding stories and interesting stories. And I would, at the time, wanted to transition that to finance. And then how does, how does that love of stories and narratives, how does that influence what you do today? Do you, do you create you know, narrative, like detailed narratives about companies or how does that, how do you, how do you flex those muscles today? Yeah. I mean, so I guess like a back to the future, um, moment, you know, I've been doing this for 20 plus years and so much that I learned being a journalist helps me process information that may be just the standard business school person doesn't understand. And so when we hear a story, we might pay attention to some really interesting facts that other people might not pay attention to and that get us going. So, you know, and I think that kind of transitions to small caps as well. So when I was at the NBA and trying to find, you know, great under the radar stories, that's kind of what we do today. We're trying to find these great, durable moat stories that a lot of people have not heard of. Um, and eventually we hope they will. And when I think of journalists, I think of them digging up information that other people either don't know how to find or that they, you know, you just don't have access to. Is that part of your diligence process trying to like go through alternative sources or places where other people are not looking for information and data? No, I mean, it's amazing what you could pluck from 10Ks and Qs and historical annual reports. Um, you know, we use everything public we could find um, and we compare one presentation to the next going back years. We compare what management teams say from one quarter to the next and one year to the next. And we kind of hold them to what they say when we kind of create our credibility index um, and kind of what they said, what they did, where do you actually follow through with what you say you're gonna do? Um, and do you become this credible manager that we want to invest with over time? So for us, it's really coming through lots of public information that we feel many folks don't go through. And if you think about how many fundamental analysts there are in the market, it's very small. I think I read something in, in 2017, there are only 10% um, fundamental analysts in the, in the market and the rest were quant. So, you know, I think by coming through lots of information, um, we gives us a little bit of an advantage, but I think it's the processing of that information that might be a little different than what others think that helps us in our, in our investment process. I'm interested in the idea of a management credibility index. 
I've painstakingly tried to create this assessment of management score where, you know, you take a bunch of variables and you score it and try to figure out whether management is what I say is a friend or a foe. I'd love to hear what about your process and what's the scale and how do you score? Um, I mean, obviously this is, you're always, I always joke with, with the students that I teach is that you're trying to quantify the unquantifiable in a way that's, you know, you kind of, you can be replicated across a portfolio. How have you thought about that? Yeah, it's, it's painstaking and it takes a long time and it's a snapshot and it's a snapshot on the credibility of someone. And what we try to avoid are the CEOs and CFOs who will tell a super promotional story, you know, in a public forum that's, you know, on Bloomberg and you can read the transcript and then they sell stock a week later. So we look at that as a management credibility hit as well. And it's, once again, you could have management teams who um, don't perform particularly well over time and we try to avoid those managers. Um, And then we might sometimes find a company to be so durable and so great that this inflection point for us is a management change. And so we won't do anything with that particular security until there's a management change. But we happen to really love the attributes of that stock. And is it only a red flag analysis or is there a green flag analysis as well, where like, you know, obviously selling right after you bull up the stock at a conference is one thing, but is there anything on the other side that you look at that says these people score highly on a credibility score as opposed to just trying to assess, uh, avoid risk of partnering with the wrong people? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, we, you know, we try to avoid the promotional CEOs. And for the most part, we have a pretty boring roster of CEOs and CFOs who call like it is and face the music and good times are bad. And um, they really, uh, they, they really don't promote the stock because in our opinion, and, and I think it's shared by them, the fundamental attributes of the company with the moats that they possess are strong enough without stock promotion. And so we typically avoid the super promotional management teams. And you made the point that the management assessment process is pretty painstaking and, and takes a lot of time. You have a pretty tight knit team at Harvey. What are the advantages to keeping that team from getting too large? And then, you know, how do you how do you make sure that you're doing enough diligence on management and the business with a small team? Yeah, so I've been used to taking a sip of water from a fire hose forever. And, you know, Harry, who works with me in research, he's he's cut the same way. And so we are constantly talking to each other. We're constantly going over names. It doesn't end because it's a passion that, that we love. And it is a tight-knit team. Um, and I would rather find stock, stocks and lead by example as opposed to managing people to find stocks because I don't want to dilute 
away our returns by not picking stocks because that's that's what I've always loved to do. And so we we want to add another analyst to the team here. It's going to take some time. It has to be the right fit. Um, and we're not going to hire someone for the sake of hiring someone. It has to be the right fit. And we really, um, we enjoy doing this and we enjoy talking stocks, going through names, and it never ends. And that same passion has to be felt with the next person that we hire. In, you know, one, I think one of the issues of running a, a small firm, a small fund, especially focused on smaller caps is like, you know, there's only so many assets you can run. You can't run a $20 billion small cap fund. You know, are there any other disadvantages or advantages that come up frequently when you're talking about running, you know, kind of smaller AUM, small cap focused funds? Yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, and for us, everything is important from getting K1s out to speaking to our LPs. Um, just it's all hands on deck all the time. And that's, that's how we've always operated. Um, and that's, you know, how we love to do it. So it's, it'll always be a relatively small team because we feel like over our 17 years of doing this, um, it's been okay. And so we are, um, we're going to stick to our knitting um, as boring as it can be sometimes, but we are going to stay with it and we'll add methodically over time to it. I don't think there's anything wrong with boring. And to that point, if I look back going all the way to 2006, Harvey Partners has consistently had smaller drawdowns than the market when the Russell 2000 had a rough patch. Is it, do you attribute that to owning boring stocks? What else do you attribute that to? Yeah, so I, you know, we're we're always looking for companies that have defensive attributes, um, but also having the ability to play offense. And you can't be a compounder if you can't play offense. And, you know, we call it the triple threat. I'll go back to the NBA days. Um, we call playing offense triple threat. And in this financial world, it's can you buy back stock? Can you make an acquisition? Can you initiate a dividend? So playing offense with defensive attributes is pretty much the, the Harvey stock. That's what we look for. Of course, there'll be some outliers in that mix where you know we might think there's some asset value here um that's really interesting even though the company is not playing offense at this moment but the inflection point that we think can come is when they can play offense and uh as you think about the framework and the the goals of your strategy are you are you trying to Kind of be competitive in up markets and outperform in down markets. Is that is that part of the stated strategies to protect capital on the way down? We over time we've protected capital pretty well on the way down, and we've trailed on the way up. So when the market has a rip roaring rally on the way up, we're we're going to trail that, um, and we always have. And I think that goes back to sort of these defensive companies that have really durable franchises that for the most part um they're not gonna go up with the market when the market rips up 
it's more idiosyncratic and you know they are um defensive for a reason but we also think that they're defensive with offensive capabilities and that's what we like because we feel like over time they will become compounders this season of compounders is sponsored by deluba deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process Delupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. And when you highlight the offensive capabilities, what is that, what does that mean to you? Is that making acquisitions? Is it is it, I mean, is it, you talked about returning capital, is it, but it could also be investing in R&D and organic growth. Like where, where, where do you look for those offensive characteristics? Yeah. So what we love, we love companies that have stable to increase in gross margins over time with an increasing top line. And if the manager is as efficient and good as we think, then over time, this should be a really nice compounding stock. And so if they, you know, spend the right money in R&D, they're smart about spending money in SG&A and they're growing the top line while enhancing or stabilizing gross margin and you've got CapEx as a de minimis piece of sales. Um it's a company that's going to generate some really nice free cash flow that is going to pay dividends to shareholders over time if we truly believe that management is up to the task. And we've talked a lot about management assessment. In my experience, over over a decade of kind of focusing on small cap stocks, it felt like as, as an investor in these companies, you had to be pretty active, whether it's on the governance side or capital allocation. How how have you approached that as as you build relationships and maintain relationships with the management teams of the companies you own? Yeah, so we, you know, a lot of the companies we own, you'll see CEOs and CFOs step up and buy stock on weakness, which we are really appreciative of. Um, we don't like it when board members sell stock at any price. Um, but we do appreciate when there's an alignment between the CEOs and CFOs of our companies and shareholders, and they believe in their own cooking and they're going to step up and buy stock when, you know, they think there's a weakness or they think the market is underappreciating the company. And if that alignment isn't there, are you prone to, making subtle suggestions that there's compensation should change or the government governance should change. Just trying to get a sense of how active yeah. you are in your conversations with management. Yeah. So we'll, we'll express our dismay. Um, if management incentives are not aligned with shareholders, if there's too much cash comp and not enough compensation aligned with stock price performance or EBITDA or free cash flow performance, um, we'll have an issue with that because it's easy for management to say they're aligned with you, but when you see the comp tables and how they get paid, it's a different story. But we are very 
um, very appreciative. And we don't take it lightly when CEOs step up and, and buy stock in the open market. We've danced around the topic, but a lot of what you've been t- talking about is in canvassing the proxy statement to understand incentives and compensation. Uh, anybody who knows me knows that is a, my favorite document. What? How do you use a proxy statement? Is it a big part of your process? What do you think you can learn that maybe other people don't focus on enough or learn um, if they're not paying attention to that document? Yeah, I mean, it's super important. I mean, seeing how they're compensated, um, seeing what the incentives are. And quite frankly, we'll, you know, we'll spend our time voting against um, directors who, who don't buy stock in the open market. And we've, um, you know, over the last, you know, five or 10 years, we'll do, we'll take a look and look at how every director has acted as a representative of the shareholders. And if, if we don't like it, we're going to vote against them. And so we take proxy season very seriously. And, um, you know, you can learn a lot about management comp, how they're incented, and why things work sometimes against a company um, based on some of these proxies. So you've discussed the desire to own defensive companies that have this offensive opportunity. And to me, that means they have significant earnings potential. Why would a business like that be neglected by the market? Where What situations occur that allow you to buy these stocks at good valuations? Yeah. Well, in, in some cases, you have, um, like for some reason, investors will pay a certain multiple for a certain stock and it seems like it's forever. And the multiple re-rating doesn't happen overnight. But when we look at a company called Orion Engineered Carbons, for example, um, OEC, we see a CEO, Corning Painter, who buys stock in the open market whenever possible. Um, we see a company that had these mandated EPA upgrades over the last four years, I think it was $250 million in mandated EPA upgrades that ended this year. And so there will be a ton of discretionary free cash flow coming to the firm over the next four or five years, just as the supply demand imbalance in their industry, which is carbon black, is very much favorable um, to them and their competitors going forward. Yet it trades at a lower multiple than when they came public in 2014. So it's small cap. You know, it's a $1.3 billion market cap. So there aren't a lot of eyeballs on it. But if anyone's paying attention to their investor day and the presentation and the industry itself and industry consultants, you'll see a massive supply demand imbalance that favors them pretty much all over the world, which should be a nice creation of compounding over the next three, four or five years. And to say like a cyclical compounder sounds a bit oxymoronic. Um, but in this case, they've spent so much money over the last four or five years on these mandated EPA upgrades. There, there wasn't a lot of free cash flow to the firm. 
but now they can play offense. They're going to start buying shares in the open market if it stays here. Um, they might look at some incremental acquisitions, if it makes sense. But the company is um, on much firmer footing in a much better environment than it's ever been, yet the multiple is lower than it's ever been. And is that a stock you currently own in the portfolio? It is. It is. And so you, what you discussed in that response is in a couple of inflection points. One, a capex cycle that was ending. And so there's an inflection point of free cash flow in that perspective. And then there's also the aspect of the supply and demand imbalance changing. And so that also being inflection point. Is that is that a prerequisite? Do you look for situations where there might be an inflection point that, that people aren't appreciating? We do. We, and, and an inflection point could be like OEC, where this mandated EPA CapEx cycle is over, and there'll be a ton of free cash flow in the firm over the next three to four years. I think based on their 2024 numbers, it's about an 18.5% free cash flow yield to the equity from where it is right now. So, yes, I mean, and when you generate that kind of free cash flow, either people pay attention or the stock will accrete on its own because you'll see the debt load decrease. You'll see them buy back shares in the open market. Once again, they could play offense. And so the inflection point could be like this, where it's a mandated CapEx cycle over and free cash flow should be plentiful. It could be a management change. That's an inflection point. Or it could be as simple as some nuggets in the 10K and 10Q about an adjacent market opportunity with your core competency that you're going after that expands your TAM, your total available market, which we find to be an inflection point over time. So that's on the company-specific basis, being able to find inflection points that other people are looking at. I'm also interested... You know, many of our listeners or people out there may not have spent a lot of time in the small cap universe. Do you also just find general mispricings in small cap because it's just maybe underfollowed and underappreciated as an asset class? Yeah, I'm not sure, but we're finding companies that are underfollowed and neglected all the time, and. You know, we like to think we're in a very short-term oriented market where a quarterly pickup will hit a stock price in a major way, yet doesn't take away from some of the long-term opportunities. And so we'll use these quarterly dislocations to kind of leg into an opportunity that we have been looking at for a long time, where all the stars align for us. We have a company that is unloved or neglected. We have durable gross margins. We have a management team that's incented correctly. We have what we consider some type of backstop, whether it's you know tangible book value or um, patents in the portfolio or real estate um, that can enhance the value. And so we're, we're going to look at everything possible to make sure that you know this quarterly dislocation you know, passes our smell test. And, you know, we do lots of work in companies and we wait. 
And you mentioned in, in that response, having a longer term perspective than maybe some other market participants, what do holding periods look like in general? What's your target holding period? Just give us an, you know, kind of some context for all that. Yeah. I mean, we, we've held some companies for 10 years and we'll hold some companies for three months if our thesis is incorrect. Um, I, I was a journalist, so there's, there's no ego here in the office. We're looking to find great companies and we have a thesis with every company that we invest in. And if our thesis is incorrect, we are not going to stay invested in that for the sake of being invested. So, you know, and then we will, we'll debate it. We'll play devil's advocate for each other. We're going to go back and forth and then we'll come to the, what we consider the right solution, even though, you know, we make plenty of mistakes, but we are going to stay true to our thesis when we invest in a company. So if I put on my allocator hat for a second and I'm looking at the strategy, a strategy that focuses a lot on inflection points, my my question would be about sourcing. I mean, how do you, how does someone go about finding companies that are at inflection points? Are there things that you can screen for? Is it just about reading and doing work? What is, how does someone follow the universe of small caps and identify a bunch of companies that are potentially at inflection points? I think it's impossible to screen for inflection points. It's, you know, sort of an EQ over time where you are, you're doing a lot of work on a company and you could see certain adjacencies and you read about them in their 10Ks and 10Qs and in their presentations. And inflection points are pretty subjective. For us, an inflection point could be a CEO coming in that maybe other investors don't like, that we happen to like. Maybe it's it's a market that we consider to be really interesting that, that others don't. So inflection points can be subjective, but for us, when we see a great company with a really great moat, that they could extend that moat to other markets and other opportunities, that just enhances the story from a long-term perspective. And you mentioned that you like to do work on companies and wait. Do you have a universe of high gross margin companies that conceivably could fit into what you want to own that you track and create models for, even if the opportunity isn't there from a valuation perspective? How should we think about that? Yeah, we do. We keep we keep track of a lot of companies and you know we and and you know gross margins are different for every industry, you know, tech companies in the 80s and 90s and if you have an industrial company with, you know, 45% gross margins for over 30 40 years, that's a pretty pretty good company. And so um the gross margin percentage is pretty specific to the industry that you plan, but we do look for companies where there is a gross margin that's stable to growing because that defines the moat. And so when we see that, either it speaks of a market that is rational in terms of competition, or there aren't a lot of players that do what this company does. And that gets us excited, especially when you find a company 
that has 45% plus gross margins for 30 plus years. And you've got two analysts on the sell side that follow it and no one's paying attention to it. That is really interesting to us. So you've covered the, you know, the traction to high gross margins and stable gross margins, which I'm also a fan of. Do you also invest in unprofitable companies that don't have consistent cash flows that there might be, you know, a while before they hit profitability and consistent margins? How is there, is there any barbell approach or is it really exclusive to this kind of high margin wide moat companies you're discussing? It'd be really hard for us to invest in like a fly by night unprofitable company. But if a company is maybe unprofitable for a short period of time and maybe they have some development at work that is super interesting, um, that could be something that excites us. So I'd say it's company by company. But for the most part, our companies are pretty profitable. But we will, you know, we might have a couple of outliers that we see just a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous inflection point turn over time to profitability and free cash flow that we think getting in at a certain price makes sense for us. And you mentioned uh, your affinity for industrial companies. And if I look at your top 10 holdings, I, I get a distinct industrial flavor. Is that an overweight that's always been there? Or is that more, is that something that you gravitate towards? Uh, or is it more a function of what the market's handing you today? Yeah, um, I think it's kind of what we gravitate to. But I would also say that many of them are non-discretionary industrials. Um, a lot of what they do is mission critical to their customers. So their customers cannot be without them, even though it gets kind of painted with the industrial brush. And sure, if there's a recession, um, they'll get hit, but maybe not hit as much as other industrials because of the mission critical nature of what they do. We haven't talked too much about, you know, you talk a little bit about tangible book value or book value being a and a kind of a, a margin of safety. But you have, we haven't talked a lot about balance sheet. What what does a balance sheet look like of the companies that you traditionally look towards? I mean, I could see situations where a company that's at an inflection point might look like it's levered, but wouldn't, wouldn't be levered if the, the earnings come through the way you expect. How have you thought about you know, balance sheet risk and the kind of balance sheets you're willing to underwrite. Yeah. So look, I mean, we prefer companies without a lot of debt and nice free cash flow that get gets rid of that debt pretty quickly. I mean, we we have a company that was levered over four times during the pandemic and now it's less than one time organically. And we're seeing that with, you know, Orion Engineer Carbons, which we talked about before. And we're seeing that with quite a few other companies that we own. And for a couple of companies that we own that do have some leverage, we also make sure that the covenants are not debt spiraling and that the covenants are pretty light 
and gives them lots of freedom to pursue growth at maybe a misperceived debt to EBITDA level that, you know, when, when you've got a real covenant light structure with no debt due for another five, six years, it gives the company some room to, to grow and pursue growth. But for the most part, we are pursuing and investing in companies that have pretty strong balance sheets. And if I think about the profile, lowly lever companies, substantial moats, high margins, you know, that sounds like a group of businesses that you could concentrate in. And it appears to me that, you know, top 10 securities make up about 40% of the portfolio. How many companies do you typically own in the portfolio? And then maybe you can talk a little bit about um, position sizing in addition to that. Yeah, Um, we typically have 30 to 40 stocks. Um, that's just the way it's always been. And there are top five, it's about 25%, um, top 10 is about 40%, um, of the portfolio. And there's not much movement, movement in that top 10. If something that we think is bad to that company happens, and then it's a top 10 position, um, you know, we're not just going to stay in it, but our top 10 positions are are there and you know we are pretty enthused to be investors and we could you know trim a little on extreme strength and buy some on extreme weakness but those top 10 positions as long as our thesis is still correct will remain uh, a top 10 position and do you have limits in terms of how big something could get that where you have to sell uh, t- talk to me a little bit about um, how you risk manage position sizing. Yeah, we we don't. Um, we like to say 8% at cost is our limit, but usually it doesn't go that high. So, you know, I'd say 6% for a top position is something that is more normal for us. And this is something I've thought about is, you know, like, are there situations in which you would want to be more concentrated? Like, you know, take me back to March 2020. I mean, could you could you have gone down to 25 stocks at that time? Or or is that was that such an unsure situation and kind of just weird, unprecedented that maybe you're more likely to have 40 because you weren't sure exactly how things were going to play out. How, how would you think about a situation like that? Well, um, yeah. I mean, who knew that you could just throw a dart in March of 2020 and they were all home runs. But yeah, I mean, that would have been fantastic. But we did use that as a time to leg into what has become you know, some of our larger positions. So... It definitely, you know, we 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 use that event as a time to really take advantage of of market opportunities. And I'm not sure I've ever seen a portfolio without any consumer stocks. I, I don't know if it's still the case, but when I looked at your portfolio last, that was the case. Is that by design? Is that by happenstance? Talk to me about where consumer stocks can play a role in a portfolio. Yeah, we have nothing against consumer stocks, but it's just 
it hasn't been our core competency um, in finding names. So nothing against consumer stocks. And if we find a great opportunity that you know, is too good to be true and no one's paying attention to it, we'll do the work on it. But we, it's, we have not invested in consumer stocks for no great reason other than we just haven't found them to be particularly desirable for us. And you, you mentioned the desire to own non-discretionary industrial companies. Is there a discretionary nature of consumer stocks that kind of keeps you away from them? There is. Whether it's the next greatest speaker or boat, we don't really know how to gauge that. But what we do know how to gauge, what we think we know, what we can gauge is mission critical companies, mission critical technology to their customers. And that spans from industrials to tech to service companies. But the consumer for us is something that is tough to make a bet on, just from our perspective. We just don't know how to how to gauge the consumer very well. So we've talked about OEC, a company that you own. I'm also interested in another stock that you think represents the quintessential Harvey Partner stock. Yeah, so we've we've owned a company called Thermon for quite some time. And Thermon is a company that has had 45% roughly plus gross margins for over 30 years. And they exist in a duopoly for the most part of heat tracing. Um, and heat tracing basically maintains the temperature of whatever the heat tracer is on. It could be um, a refinery. It could be um, a natural gas tank. It could be um, it could be anything. And there's lots of moats around this business to the point where Thermon, which is still followed by two analysts, roughly billion dollar market cap, um, they were levered at four times plus during the pandemic. Now they're less than one time, all organic growth. They're mission critical to their customers, yet they are, I think, 1% of the CapEx spend of their customers. They're de minimis and super mission critical. And what Thermon did, which we found very interesting, is that they developed something called technology-enabled maintenance, which they call Genesis, which you put Genesis in every refinery and you know every plant where they are in, and it proactively tells you when a heat tracer is going down. Because if a heat tracer goes down, you need to replace it really quickly. Otherwise, you're going to have issues with your plant and your customers. When the freeze hit Texas a couple of years ago and there were terrible tragedy for, for Texas, there was a Senate bill number three that was passed that mandated freeze protection. And so what you're starting to see now, it's starting to hit, is that all these gas processing plants are putting in heat tracers and mandated freeze protection so that they don't go through what happened last time, 
where they couldn't heat homes and couldn't get heat to consumers. And so the the beauty of this company and what we liked about it so much is that it was trading at the same IPO price that it traded at, I think, in 2012, in 2020, yet you had this incredible moat around the base business and they were getting into different adjacent businesses. So rail and transit, when you walk into a New York City subway station, you get a gust of hot air in your face, that's Thermont. When you're taking Amtrak and you see the heat that's being put on the switching devices on a railroad track, that's Thermont. In food and beverage processing, that's now Thermont. And so they've taken this e-technology and thermal management, and they're deploying it to other adjacent markets that are only increasing the TAM. And, you know, at their analyst day, which was pretty recently, they talked about, you know, a 600 to $700 million revenue goal in their fiscal year 2026 with 24% EBITDA margins. And so, you know, you could give that any type of historical multiple and it, it becomes a very interesting compounding stock. I take a step back and I think about a business with those characteristics, duopolistic, high margin, seems like it has some secular tailwinds, right? As maybe regulation yep. being on top of that. Why would a stock like that be underfollowed by analysts? Why would it be, you know, completely unloved and abandoned by public investors? I don't know, but look, they, they're very capital efficient. So they're not doing equity raises to shore up the balance sheet. They are sleepy. I mean, they have a very, they have a larger public competitor in Envent, which was spun out of Pentair a while ago. Um, I don't know why it's so ignored by the sell side. I don't, but the attributes of this company, when you go back in time, and you look at the steady gross margin and the market adjacencies that they're getting into with a capex light model it's it's super interesting um i don't know why there's only two firms that follow this and probably 20 firms that follow an unprofitable company that won't be here in a year or two but i don't i don't know i don't know that's a great question i don't know the answer but what is good is I think the investors who've done the work on this name don't need the sell side to tell them that this is a good or a bad company. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. So we've talked about a couple of things that you really like. I'm always interested in mistakes and how they shape an investor. Um, are there certain patterns or themes or consistent errors that you've made throughout your career that you, you know, try really hard not to work, not, not to do again? Like for me, secularly declining businesses that look really cheap are probably, you know, whatever 
numbers one yeah. through 10 on where I've lost money. But to, maybe I'd love to hear a little bit about like what mistakes you've made and, and, and also, you know, how, how you, how you think about avoiding making those going forward. So I'm in on that first point because yes, I mean, my, the, the biggest mistakes that we made early on were finding these super cheap companies that had massive customer concentration. So, and by the way, and I, and I talk to Harry about this all the time, like we don't like making mistakes, but we do like making mistakes so we can learn from them. And so we, we write down all the mistakes we make so that we can learn from them. And so early on, you know, there was a super cheap company that we invested in that had a 60% customer that crapped out on them. And then this cheap stock became suddenly expensive. And so the things that I've learned over time is that cheap stocks get cheaper many times. And if you're secretly declining, that melting ice cube is going to melt a lot faster than you think. And so we try to avoid those. And the other mistake that we made over the last two years, we love finding great managers. We love finding great management teams. We think we do the work, but you know, what that management team does in the future is something that you don't know. And, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to work for Dick Gilder at Gilder Gagnon Howe, and he had a saying that souffle never rises twice. And that's in my head all the time. And so when we invested in a company, and I, I won't say which company it is, we were very enamored with the CEO who sold another company and became CEO of this company. And he did some really great balance sheet um, sales to get the company on its right footing. But this CEO started making acquisitions that he thought the customers wanted, not that the customers wanted them. And it took us a while to figure out that he was doing this and we sold the stock. And it was a big opportunity cost for us because we really thought that this could be a compounder, like a great one. But when your CEO doesn't listen to your customers, that's a problem. And so that was another mistake. And we're going to keep making mistakes because that's unfortunately a part of life, but it's also fortunate because we can learn from them. Agreed on that. Very well said. Um, I'm interested in, in talking about the business of investment management for the moment. You know, my history in the small cap space specifically was that there was a lot of interest from allocators when I first started. And then the allocators who were interested in small cap, especially value, especially people who ran somewhat concentrated, that just yeah. dried up over the last maybe five or six years. I'm interested in in how you perceive the business of investment management and the and the the kind of demand for strategies like yours. How has that changed in recent years, and how is that? How, how do you shift or pivot to to you know kind of uh, be successful in a slightly different environment? Yeah, we like I said earlier on, we're we're pretty boring. I mean, we've we've always been more focused on our portfolio and and doing well for our investors as opposed to raising money, which is probably not a good long-term strategy, but we feel like we want to do well for our, our investors and ourselves. 
And we want to think that if we do well, then that it will come, but it's not that simple. And so, you know, it's been word of mouth for us. We've been at this for a while. Um, and our returns have been pretty decent. And so um, we're getting on some radars, but it takes a long time. It takes a long time to raise money, especially if you're from a shop that a lot of people haven't heard of. But I mean, I was fortunate enough to work for someone who I considered the most prolific investor I ever met. But, you know, I don't know how many people heard of him but he was amazing and he was our largest investor until he passed away. But, you know, raising money has been something that is, um, it's always been a challenge, but we're more focused on the portfolio than raising assets. Since you mentioned it, I'd love to hear what you learned working for that investor. What, what, you know, if there were quotes or anecdotes or things that you'll never forget that you learned from, from him, what, what would, what crosses your mind when I, when I asked that? Yeah. So Dick, Dick Gilder was, you know, and I, I got lucky, you know, better to be lucky than good. I got lucky to, enough to work for him and I'll never forget. I had a Mexican home builder in on a beautiful summer night on a Friday at seven 30. And he was going away that weekend, but he stayed. He stayed around to listen to this meeting. And he was so self-deprecating, the way that he would ask questions, yet so self-deprecating and always extracting the critical variable, mm -hmm. what he considered to be the right, the right answer. And I would find myself writing down his lines of questions and how he got to that. And I was a sponge around him and it's helped my career and, you know, super fortunate and lucky to have worked for him. Yeah. The more I do this, the longer I've done this, I feel like the best investors get to the key variables the quickest. Yeah. Cause it, yeah. Saves, you, it saves you time on, on, it saves you from spending time on things you shouldn't spend time on, whether that's companies you shouldn't spend time on or going down rabbit holes that you don't need to. If you can figure out what those key variables are, you just, you're so much more efficient and the best do it almost intuitively. Yes. And I think the company appreciates that as well because they know when you're not, you're beating around the bush, you know? So he was very direct and, just a real, real person. And I was, I was fortunate enough to, to work for him. I think I know what your answer is going to be to this, because you say you're very focused on returns for your investors. But if we're having this conversation seven years from now, what do you think would, what would success look like to you for Harvey Partners? You know, Back to the boring comment, we we like doing this. We're we're stock junkies. And you know, when I go home at night, I'm reading a 10Q. It's it, it's not gonna change much. We might have another analyst, um, but it's not gonna change much. We're gonna be doing the same thing that we've always done. And it's finding these idiosyncratic, off the radar 
small cap names that we think are really durable that the market is overlooking for now. And if you were successful through word of mouth or through just appreciation of the portfolio uh, in terms of the asset level going up, is, do you have a state level at which you close the strategy? How have you thought about capacity? Yeah. So we think, and, and Jeff did some very good analysis and Anthony, who's our CFO, did some really good analysis. We will at 2 billion, we will close. So that's our max. Got it. Got it. Well, Jimmy, we've covered a lot. We've covered specific stocks. We've covered philosophy, process, management, all things I love. Um, so we'll close with the question that we ask all of our manager guests. What do you think is the most underappreciated aspect of the investment opportunity you're pursuing at Harvey Partners? I think it's the eclectic and off the radar portfolio. I just, I just don't. I don't think we correlate very well with other funds, which I think is a positive. I think the, the lack of correlation and the, the real interesting names that we have that I think is underappreciated. Great. Well, Jimmy, appreciate you taking the time and being on Compounders. Um, love to have you back again sometime. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. It was great. Jimmy discussed a number of securities on this podcast. I do not own any of them. 